There has never been a more important time to make a difference and create better lives. I'm Andrew Liveris, former chairman and chief executive officer of the Dow Chemical Company and the former executive chairman of Dow DuPont. In this podcast series, you will hear from one of our Liveris Academy scholars interviewing a leader they identified as being important to them. Today we are taking on leadership through uncertainty, through the lens of nuclear technology, and particularly the intersection of such technology with safety and policy. It is an honour to be joined by Cindy Vestergaard, a Senior Fellow and Director at the Stimson Centre with the Nuclear Safeguards and Blockchain in Practice programs. Before this role, Vestergaard was a Senior Researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies in Copenhagen, Denmark. She has contributed to amazing work in the areas of non-proliferation, arms control and disarmament policy and programming at Canada's Foreign Minister, with a host of roles including Senior Policy Advisor in both the Global Partnerships Program and Foreign Intelligence Division and Political Officer at Canada's Mission to Hungary and Slovenia. Cindy has also been an external lecturer at the University of Copenhagen, and if you follow weapons of mass destruction, proliferation and disarmament issues, you are sure to have come across her presenting at conferences or contributing to media outlets, both within the US and internationally. You can see why it's such an honour to have a moment of her time today. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me. You studied your undergraduate at the University of British Columbia, your Master's in International Relations and European Studies from the Central European University, and your PhD in Political Science from the University of Copenhagen. What led you from this background of international relations into the specific space of uranium and nuclear safety? So what led me there is international relations. I was born in Canada to Danish parents and always back and forth between the two continents. So international relations was always something that was of interest, particularly at the time when I was going to high school and then university later was the end of the Cold War. Europe was certainly changing. Its borders that my parents would have known growing up had been shifting. And then looking at the nuclear space, because that's really international relations, or at least the heart of power structures. And they're frustrating, they are dynamic, and they are uh, really all things good and bad when it comes to international relations. Yeah, power makes the world go round. I was wondering if you could explain your current role and the scope of that position. So the differentiation between the nuclear safeguards and then how blockchain technology can be used in the nuclear space. Sure. So I I direct two programs at Simpson. One is the safeguards program, which started when I joined the centre in 2016. And then the blockchain and practice program is uh, just over a year old. We started that in October 2019. So the Safeguards Program is looking at uh, specifically a project right now that we're studying, which is called Back Into the Future, where we're looking at policies regarding and certainly approaches, national approaches to waste management and disposal. The, The program as a whole really tries to understand how nuclear safeguards, and these are the non-proliferation measures in place internationally to be able to verify that states are meeting their obligations for peaceful purposes under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So we look at how those safeguards obligations evolve over time, and they certainly have, and also keeping pace with technology, uh, both for how a state might divert material, but also for how the International Atomic Energy Agency can use technology for better monitoring of, of measures. 
so we're really looking at how those measures are evolving, but also how industry and states are keeping pace also with those obligations and technology as they move forward. The Blockchain and Practice Program is a program that emerged out of almost two years of study, uh, initial uh, look at the potential for blockchain or specifically distributed ledger technology and what that might provide for facilitating and securing reporting among states and to international organizations under nuclear non-proliferation treaty, but also other treaties such as the Chemical Weapons Convention and the Biological Weapons Convention and export controls. So it's really looking at how technology can be used for good, which is not something we always have a chance to do in this field. So it's nice to be able to, to look at it from that perspective. It doesn't mean that technology doesn't always have a dark side, but in this case, it's really something that has the potential to create greater efficiencies in reporting. You mentioned there looking at how the safeguards and policies are changing over time and evolving. With the tumult of the past year, there's been a lot of change and adaptation in all facets of life. With these impacts extending to the international level in particular, what has that meant for your field in terms of current relations between countries, how they trade, uh, what they're prioritising at the moment, and their evolving obligations? Well, certainly teleworking and health restrictions, travel restrictions create a number of different challenges for nuclear safeguards overall. And if we're looking at the international level for inspectors to be leaving the IAEA, there are certainly disruption, travel disruption, although as I understand it, the IAEA did adapt in being able to charter flights when it had to, to be able to ensure that on-site inspections and announced inspections were still continuing during this time to make sure that there was still confidence uh, in the international community that nuclear materials was being used as they were declared. I think one of the things, and certainly on the blockchain side, is teleworking and health restrictions also certainly increase the need for no-touch systems and for networks to be able to communicate and talk in a way without me having to sign a piece of paper uh, two feet away from you. And and being able to facilitate secure transactions and data among a network. So I think here we will see an interest grow. It was already there before, but certainly growing more in looking at DLT, distributed ledger technology, and what it can do for non-financial, non-cryptocurrency side of things in facilitating and creating secure networks. I know you just mentioned looking at the back end of the nuclear cycle, but I'm also aware that you've studied the front end in the past. Within the nuclear fuel cycle, what stages are the most critical for rigorous safety measures and what do we do to address these? Well, at each stage, there are different considerations to make, right? So there are certain risks that accompany different parts of the fuel cycle along the way. And those measures, those three F measures that I talked about, safety, security and safeguards, need to be at place to be able to address those specific risks along the way. So uranium mining has a different set of risks than a nuclear power plant and disposal or even transport. All along the way, there are different uh, risks at play. The question was, what was the more dangerous of them all? Yeah, where, where is the sort of the most risk for things going wrong? Well, I, it's actually, it's, you know, nuclear power plants operate quite well uh, and they are quite safe. The industry is very much concerned to make sure about their safety operations for their own people, but also for the communities which they themselves live in. From looking at the, I would say, looking at the nuclear fuel cycle larger, 
the issue is always to make sure that policies are at play and that politicians are understanding why we have certain policies in place. Why are there ones that have been there for decades? Are those things that should be continued to maintained as new technology might have a potential impact? So when we're looking at nuclear waste, for example, one of the things that I would say is the biggest risk to the entire fuel cycle is making sure that there is an actual plan for how nuclear waste is going to be disposed of. So when nuclear fuel reaches the end of its life, it has to be disposed of. Otherwise, it's just hanging out of interim storage, and that means that land can never be reclamated back. That, for me, is one of the biggest challenges and one of the biggest risks is a need for not just, you know, one state to lead the way, which Finland is doing. The first deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel is being built in Finland and is expecting to receive spent nuclear fuel sometime in the next four or five years. But to be able to look at this from a regional perspective, but also from a more multilateral perspective in that states can learn from others and what best practices in spent nuclear fuel management and disposal. Okay, so do you think that world leaders do have a deep enough grounding in the impacts and nuances when they are deriving and advocating their policies? Or is that where individuals such as yourself come in to inform them in that process? I think there's always a mix. I mean, that's such a, you know, you can talk general and to talk general about a politician in North Carolina to one in Adelaide to Mm -hmm. one in Helsinki. Um, are all going to be very different. And the independent research is incredibly important for anybody to be able to weave through what obviously, when we're talking about the nuclear, the nuclear field, it's one that is ripe with a lot of misinformation and a lot of myths and a lot of narratives. So making sure that it is fact-based, but there's also still a lot of emotion in nuclear, and that is okay. It is okay to recognize that, and and only through the recognition of that can you have a sober dialogue. And when we're talking about different uh, community uh, or consent-based approaches, whether that be a geological repository, a nuclear power plant, a uranium mine, then that approach will also differ based on the culture, norms, political aspects, and systems within different countries in the world. So... It's hard to generalize, but to say that what I would hope that would actually derive and guide policies would be everything from the local level up to the, you know, county, state, province, and then up into the national level. But that is based on robust discussions and interactions with experts and communities. Looking at discussion across the multi-level structure in the area of policy and creating policy understanding policy, communicating policy, what do you think are the most important qualities within leaders in that area? And who do you think are the leaders? Is it kind of a bit of everyone from the different levels all contributing to this discussion? I haven't really thought about who would be the best. I mean, I'm I'm sure there are a number of different approaches that are going to be more successful than others in different contexts. And one of the things that that we don't do is rank countries. It's one, there isn't really a reason to, because again, each country has different challenges and different aspects that I think it becomes almost impossible unless you're doing something very focused on statistics versus focusing on outcomes. And when you're looking at particularly community outreach, or let's even make it a fourth S, society, that those aspects are going to be different. But in terms of communicating, I mean, there's certainly best practices. When you're looking at a deep geological repository, for example, well, if Finland is the first in the world, then there should be some good practices there to be able to look at. 
One of those things, though, is also trust. When a community has a certain amount of trust in a specific ministry or department or agency, and that exists in Finland far more than in other countries. So you would have to dig deeper into why, but usually it will have something to do with everything from cost overruns to how they communicate with public, how they reach out with public. Are they sitting down with them? Are they just speaking at them? Are they speaking with them, town halls? And of course, it's more of a, a comprehensive dialogue there. But then you can also look at other ways or programs for outreach that are done in different countries that will have different results. So I think that, you know, communicating science is not just in terms of for communities as well as for policymakers, but it's always a challenge, I think, for the scientists as for the policymaker. But the translating science into digestible chunk is something that is mandatory in our work. And it's not always successfully executed, <laughs> I, I would say, particularly when someone is describing what a reactor is, particularly new reactors. So, it, you know, it, it's always a process like anything else. It, I would say that is something that is mandatory in our field. And not everybody understands that, but a lot of people do, certainly a growing number do. So I know you've had a bit of experience at the public interface doing that sort of translation from your expert knowledge to passing that information on to others who don't know as much. How do you sort of approach that process of breaking things down to communicate them? Well, it always starts off with who is the audience. That's the, the first thing. The same thing when you're writing a paper and papers can be more widely read. You know, closed sessions can, be, can work differently in different types of settings. But it, essentially, it's, we always talk about, I think, in, in any field, it's your family test, right? Does your family understand what you do or what you're saying? And, and again, are you going on TV for a 30-second bit or uh, you know, were you just doing punditry? Or do you have time to actually provide more of a lecture type or do you have 15, 20 minutes to do a presentation? It's not just in terms of the audience, but also the format of the communication. Yeah, thank you. I'm just going to come back to looking at the idea of trust, because I think that is a really vital aspect within leadership, within communication, within advancing technology forward in a positive way. Looking specifically at the interface between technology and automation with aspects such as security procedures, I feel like there's potentially some boundaries there because not only do people have to trust what is being implemented, but they also have to trust in the technology, which they sometimes don't necessarily understand. What sort of challenges and boundaries do you see at that interface and what are some of the ways that you think these could be addressed? Well, trust is something that is built over time. So it's not something that comes just with one paper or one demonstration of a technology or particularly in the nuclear field, you have to keep in mind nuclear technology is a disruptive technology. It has the potential to destroy big swaths of our, you know, everything from obviously infrastructure to humans. At the same time, it also, when nuclear technology arrived on the scene, it also disrupted in terms of energy. It provided another source of energy. It provided a medical isotope and an entire field and industry that grew up around that. And also the three S that I was talking about. Building trust is something that is, is always a step-by-step approach, no matter which sector you're building that trust in. With nuclear, it, again, it comes back to the culture of different countries. That's always part of every scenario. Again, if we talk about it for us, the, the society component is going to be one of the biggest swing aspects, if you will. It will be a determiner, whereas nuclear safeguards are pretty clear what the international obligations are, and there are step-by-step approaches to be able to implement that. And that 
might be a little contentious here and there and might rub some people the wrong way when they're doing it the first time. But it's a little different than something where how do we, how do we reach out to people? How do we communicate? How do we talk about technology? How do we engage? And what I do with policymakers is really underscore the step-by-step approach that we're taking. That we are Clydesdales on an incredibly fast highway of technology. Lamborghinis are running by, but we're quite happy plodding along and, and making sure that we're taking our time and we're not distracted by shiny objects. And, and that in this approach, we need to make sure that the technology is, for example, with blockchain as we're developing prototypes, to see how one, it handles specific transactions, but more importantly, how does it mix in with the current legal structures that are there? Are there any barriers to implementation? What does it mean, you know, when you introduce something one area, it usually will have an impact on another area. So as we develop our prototypes and we take chunks at one piece at a time, and we don't do the entire field of safeguards all at once, then we can actually have a better sense as to A does B, B leads to C, and then also understanding more about, ah, we don't know about this yet, so we need to understand more about the legal aspects in this one area, or how would this work with different databases in the IAEA right now? So those are really the questions as you go through, is taking it slowly. When you've got this international network of countries with their own cultures, with their own sets of laws, how important is it to get countries on board with treaties and agreements towards a unified goal? Well, incredibly, and I, I'm now I'm going to have to test myself. How many state parties are there to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty? Is it 190-something? You're going to have to double-check that. Right? <laughs> I will. <laughs> But it's, I mean, we're already there when it comes to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in the sense that, you know, there is a universal agreement that nuclear weapons are not a uh, weapon of choice. That said, there are nine countries in the world that do have nuclear weapons. Five of those are recognized in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So there is a tension, certainly a disconnect even, where you have states inside and outside of the NPT, but also at the same time, there's a treaty on disarmament that is now out there. And that also creates some more tensions in between states, particularly those that possess or those that are also part of NATO or under a nuclear umbrella. So universal approaches, you don't necessarily always have to have them from the beginning. They can be built over time. A lot of states that are, for example, fundamentally opposed to the Chemical Weapons Convention when it was first being discussed. And it was just really Soviet Union at that time and the United States that were really leading negotiations. I mean, where that was the Cold War. So sometimes you have to have certain countries that are leading the way, depending on the political system of the globe at the time. But also it can be built and it can and norms can shift and public will determine that also based on the policies that are put forward for them to vote on. Are you more optimistic about the future of nuclear technologies being used for good? Or do you think more on the side of regulations and caution in that regard? When it comes to nuclear technology itself, uh, there are some advances that are happening uh, that we might see, uh, depends on what you determine as the near future, but advanced reactors, for example, that's a new type of reactor with a variety of different moderators that are out there and just on the design table. And none, none of them are actually commercialized yet. And that'll probably take, this is maybe also another example. If you talk sometimes to technologists, ah, they'll all be commercialized in five years. When you talk to those who know about licensing and safeguards and security and everything else, ah, it's 15 to 20, right? Yeah. <laughs> So bureaucracy, rightly, should take a little bit more time. Sometimes it could be more efficient, of course. But 
the nuclear technology, my role really is always to be neutral in the sense of understanding that governments are going to decide and publics are going to decide what type of electricity is, it should be part of their national grid. That is a decision that needs to be made nationally. If there's a determination to use nuclear, then my perspective or my research comes in to say, all right, if you're going to do this, here are all the things that you need to think of on the safeguards and security side and be able to help bridge and certainly raise awareness about these aspects. Because a lot of time they're not considered. It is that engineer or technologist who says we can make a billion dollars in five years if we get this going. Once they actually sit down, it's not just about safety. I mean, a design can be incredibly safe, but is it secure and is it safeguardable along the way? One of the things, though, that I am more concerned about, I would say, or certainly have my eyebrows raised about going forward and something I wanted to dedicate my attention to moving forward is actually different technologies and how they are having an impact on the nuclear sector. So, for example, 3D printing. What does that mean for safeguards if you can 3D print specific nuclear parts? And that, for me, is actually one of the scarier aspects because if you can start to create mobile nuclear facilities, then that means you can cross borders and that means you can hide something, I'm just going to say, under trees or under a shed, right? I mean, that's probably a little more simplistic. But the anxiousness, the anxiety that I have about uh, certain technologies and then making sure that the policy community is able to keep a pace and then have international guidance and also international treaties reflect, particularly in export controls, to reflect what the dynamic of the and the potential for risks that come along with new technology. Yeah, wow. So within your research at the Stimson Centre, what sort of leadership dynamic is present in the pursuit of enhancing international peace and security and having new things communicated across your organization? Leadership in pursuit of advancing peace and security. Okay, that's a great question. That's a uh... And that's the part I'm going to focus on in that question. Well, I think one of the things that I really enjoy about Simpson is the diversity of voices that are there. It's such a diverse staff, which is, I think, just lends itself to a open, transparent discussion. And I think that has to be part of any organizational structure. I'm not someone who studies organizational behavior, so I wouldn't know how we would stack up, you know, with others. But in terms of the pursuit and advancement of peace and security, I think our approach, or at least my approach, which fits quite nicely with Simpson's approach, is to really have the space to be able to do the research and to get down into the weeds of information. And as you said, if you're going to be able to communicate, and we are, and NGOs really are a bridge in many respects, sometimes on track two dialogue, bringing together different governments, for example, or just bringing together different groups, whether that be an insurance company with uh, academics, with uh, engineers, and so on and so forth. As long as you have that space that provides with allowing that more neutrality as I mentioned, the time to be able to engage with these technologies. As I mentioned, the highway can be fast-paced and advances. Right now, just everything seems to be moving so fast or slow. Uh, It's a weird time with COVID as well. It seems like (laughs) it's a fast-moving, slow-paced world. It's uh, incredibly strange. But I think within that, to be able to, again, communicate the science, then you have to be able to take your time to understand it and be able to communicate in a way with policies that allow that space and then that can create a space for leadership. Thank you. Is there any person or organisation in particular that has inspired your interest in this area or how you approach your own job and your own communication in your organisation? I wouldn't say there's anyone in particular, one organisation in particular. It's uh, 
It's more my team who I get to work with are incredibly inspiring. They have such light in their eyes and ambition and, and curiosity. Their desire coupled with mine just propels us to a space where we can discuss things so openly and toss things out that are ridiculous. But to be able to provide a space to brainstorm is incredibly important for the work that we do. And a sense of humor. You have to have a sense of humor in the nuclear business. Uh, sometimes we can get a little bit morbid. Sometimes we can be a little silly. And it's just so important to be able to have a sense of humor no matter what job you have. Probably to wrap up here, what sort of advice would you have to someone listening today who wants to potentially get into this field? What are the sort of the areas they should be working on developing within themselves? What sort of things did you find most fundamental to where you are today? Well, I think one of the things is, you know, I'll flip it around a little bit and what kind of skills am I looking at when interns are applying, for example, mm. or someone is, is applying for a research assistant or associate position. The first thing is you have to be able to write. You have to be able to write well. And on the technology side, sometimes we have difficulty. Uh, we can have some great minds check, and when it comes back to the communicate, because we are at that intersection of policy and tech and nonproliferation and tech, we have to be able to communicate to a variety of different audiences. So one, you have to be able to write, not just the mean bullet points, but actually paragraphs that can, <laughs> that can go together. Other skill sets, languages are useful. I'd say it's more of a bonus, but it is certainly that is useful because again, it comes back to understanding different cultures. And that's something where actually all of uh, the teams that I've had over my career have lived abroad and uh, sometimes in a number of different countries. And, and that helps to feed in a more rounder understanding, I think. And so if you have opportunities to go abroad, even if it's just for a six-week course or a two-week course or anything like that, always take those opportunities because they are incredibly enriching not just for your career, but also personally, I think. <laughs> Going abroad seems a little bit far off at the moment, but hopefully soon. <laughs> I know, I know, but at least we can still do some virtual courses. I have them who are currently doing one and they're in a mix with a very diverse global one. So it is true, but I mean, to be able to engage, that's a good point, to be able to engage certainly in the virtual setting, it might seem harder, but actually there's a lot of avenues to be able to interact. And actually, that actually will take me to a third point, Lily, which is in today's age is understanding the technology more, including the platform to be able to interact. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing the bridges that technology can accomplish. I'm conducting this podcast over Zoom from another country. Yeah, it's a really amazing opportunity. And I would just like to thank you so, so much for giving up your time and uh, speaking to me today. No problem, Lily. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to meet new stars in the field, rising. But also, as you said, I think that's also a good note to end on. Whatever you are thinking initially that you wanted to do, it might change and you might do it better than you initially thought. 